Hi, I'm Jen Kelly from The Herald Sun. Join me for In Black and White, a podcast series about some of Melbourne's forgotten characters. It's available on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. They were working out how to manipulate race results, not just in Melbourne or Victoria, but anywhere they could. There was a lot of drug money uh, floating around. There was a lot. There was cash everywhere. You give them a couple of winners, because if they took 100 grand of dirty money and they got 70,000 clean, they're still in front because it's dirty money. I'm Andrew Rule. This is another episode of Life and Crimes. Ladies and gentlemen, you will hear bleeps in this episode, some for matters of taste and some to please our lawyers. Today, our listeners are going to meet an old associate of mine. We're going to call my old friend here Jock. Jock by name, Jock by profession, because Jock was truly one of Australia's finest horsemen and race riders. Welcome to the show, Jock. I know it's not the name your mother called you, but there are good reasons for that. Mm. Tell us a bit about how you got into riding racehorses as a kid. Uh, well, I was born and bred in Braybrook. Were you? Really uh, a good neighbourhood. Tough neighbourhood. Very tough neighbourhood. Some good sportsmen come out of Braybrook too. Yeah. Uh, Ted Whitten, um, Dougie Hawkins. Yeah. As kids growing up in Braybrook, all you wanted to do was ever be an athlete or a criminal. Being a jockey, you were both. Yeah, yeah, well, there you go. It goes hand in hand, doesn't it? My father was a B-class jockey that used to fix the salary and always a mad Richmond supporter, always wanted to play football for Richmond. And then my father, used to, we used to watch the Melbourne Cup and he said to me, and he said, oh, there's a race on TV tonight in England called English Grand National. It's on at two o'clock in the morning. It's bigger than the Melbourne Cup. I said, oh, bigger than the Melbourne Cup? He said, biggest horse race in the world, most famous horse race in the world. Longest race, uh, he said, you'll love it. This was um, April 1977. So then I sent my clock, got up, and I still remember going into the lounge room and watching this race, and I can still hear the call in my head. And as soon as I watched it, I mean, I think there was about 50 starters that year, 77, Red Rum won the race, and as soon as I seen that, I just instantly wanted to be a jump shockey. I think it might have been the first time I ever experienced adrenaline. It was like a war. There was horses and bodies everywhere and amazing race that's watched all around the world and I just wanted to be a part of it and that's what I set my mind on and that's what... How old were you then? I was nine. And how soon was it before you got to throw your leg over a horse? Probably the next week. I started to ride, go with my old man down the track, started mucking out boxes, started and just wanted to be a jockey, wanted to be a jump jockey, wanted to ride in England. Someone said, do you want to win the Melbourne Cup? I said, I want to win the Grand National. When did you start riding work? Probably when I was 12. Yep. Had my first race ride at 14. Rode my first winner at 14 at St. Arnold. Yep. One of the youngest shockies ever to do that because usually they start 15, 16, but I got my permission to leave school. I went to Braybrook High and rode my first winner at Tarang at 14. That's fantastic. Mm. And how long before you went over the jumps? Uh, 87, I think I started riding over jumps. My first ride was a horse called Gundog at Stall and it won my first ride for Calf Smith. Because I'd been to Ray Lawson and, and Mickey Winks at Flemington, and he was a great boss, Mr. Winks, and things didn't work out, so my dad took me to Epson because he was doing the saddles there, and I wanted to ride over jumps, always wanted to ride over jumps, so he got me in with Calf Smith, and it started from there. Good stuff. Now, while you were growing up during all this period, yeah, you knocked around the streets of the western suburbs, so Braybrook, Braybrook yeah. and also possibly Sunshine, Footscray, yep. and you met a lot of colourful characters, or people who later became colourful characters, and one of them, I think, was a young Carl Williams. 
Met Carl. What was I met Carl? I was going out with a girl in Broadmeadows and met Carl through her. And um, Carl and George were knockabout punters. George being his father. George, his father. And like I was good friends with Shane, Carl's older brother, that died of a heroin overdose. And I think I first tipped uh, George and Carl a uh, winner of the Geelong Cup in 1989, which was 80 to 1. And from then on, I was the best thing since sliced bread. So, um, yeah. That's how it started, our association, mine and Carl's. And I went to England one year and come back and Carl had progressed from just a run around crim to pretty high high profile. Was it true that your first video... Brought my first hot video from Carl. Yes, so, yeah. That's, that was the extent of his ambitions as a young fellow. Was... Oh, yeah, it was, yeah. And then, then when I went away and come back, he sort of um, had bloomed into a uh, major... A major player. Right. Your career blossomed on the track. Yeah. I was, and yeah, you I was, became a very good jumps rider. But, of course, you're never far away from the sort of people that want to influence the outcomes of races and <sighs> work out ways to try and curry favour with jockeys and so on and so forth. Who was it that introduced you to major punters who were also major race fixers? I was um, good friends with Vinnie Knight. Always idolised Vinny. I mean, because Vinny done what he wanted. Vinny, of course, was the great harness racing driver mm. of that era. Yeah. I, I think you described him as the Ayrton Senna of harness. He drivers. was. He was. He's done what he wanted. He had a flock of women following him around everywhere. He had always had lots of cash. Always had people hanging off. And it's the way he drove. Just to watch the way he drove. He just done what he wanted to do. And I liked that. And yeah, I idolised Vinny. And I said, How uh, did you meet him? I said, Well, I'd met him through a, a, a mate. Got to know him, and then one day, it was a Sunday afternoon, we were in Chinatown at a place called Westlake, which I used to go to quite a lot, and Vinny was there, and he was there with a, a heap of Asian guys and a few others and girls and all that, and he was, he was pissed, and um, he said, yeah, Chuck, come over here, and um, so I went over and he goes, eh. he said, if ever you got a winner, give it to this bloke, and he pointed to this little Chinese bloke with glasses and... Um, Jimmy the Triad, Jimmy, Jim, Jimmy the Triad, we'll call him, and, and this is before Crown Casino, and this bloke ran all the illegal gaming joints in Chinatown, which if you wanted to have a punt, you ever went to Chinatown or you went to Carlton, yeah. uh, where the other boys operated. Vinny put me on to this bloke. I got his number, and I was riding a horse called Peter Jot for CAF the next week, and we'd been schooling him, and he was flying. And I just rang this bloke up and said, mate, this thing will win. He goes, you sure? I said, mate, it's a certainty. Anyway, it won, Yarra Glen at 25 to 1. So I rang Vinny up. I said, well, what do I do? He said, what do you do? Go and collect. That's what you do. So I went to the trots on a Friday night. And when I walked up to these blokes, they, they were all dressed in gold and all that, all that sort of. And they were pretty, obviously, you could see that they had a bit of money. And this bloke ran up to me and tried to kiss me. And you know, he had another bloke with him, the Rough Diamond, um, big-looking, middle-European-looking bloke. Yeah. And they both gave me, put it this way, I had enough money, cash, to buy my first car, which was a second-hand Calais. So, so a fair bit of dope. And they said to me, is that enough? <laughs> so, yeah. So I was pretty happy. And you were how old? 18? 17. 17. Did that relationship develop over time? Oh, yeah. Um, there was time there. From 87 when I met him to about 89, 90, before he got deported and the rough diamond got locked up, I had to run to Chinatown, basically. There was a few other flat jockeys, too, that he had under his sort of thing, but... I could do no I, need to name them here. I could go anywhere, just sign for for dinner, go to a, a couple of jewelry stores, pick what I wanted, and just sign his name. And I thought, how how good is this? You know, and I used to take all the other flat jockeys with me, and we used to eat and drink and do what we wanted. The new he also had a couple of red light places operating there too. I don't know if you know Chinatown. Do you remember a place called Oriental Gourmet? I'm not sure. 
Sure. Okay, the Oriental Gourmet is not called Oriental Gourmet now. It's called something else. But the door is still there. It's all boarded up now. You walked in the Oriental Gourmet. On the left, there was a door. And it used to be a bloke standing there. Now, if you got past the bloke, right, you'd go to another door at the base of the stairs. You got past that, you'd go up a big iron door with a, a grill. And knock, 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 that open, look who you are, and let you in. And we used to go up there, well, to collect if we had a win. And there were all these games. And there's one particular game they used to play where they used to there'd be four of them sitting around a table and a guy would get a handful of coffee beans and put them on, on the middle of the table. They'd put something over the top and they'd bet from zero to four. And they'd count them by fours and whatever number was left was the winner. Right. And the amount of cash I've seen change. And this guy, Jimmy the Triad, he ran all the illegal games. Mr. Big. He was a Mr. Big of Chinatown. And um, he also had a lot of beautiful girls working for him. Monica was um, was one particular one I remember with good memories, and he would he go up to this gaming joint and he was pretty smart. This bloke he knew the house always won, so he always won. But if a punter was getting on a roll and starting to win big, he would stop his momentum by saying to him, "You're too good for me. You've beaten me. I'll give you one hour in the red room." When that red room was a, another part of his business, part, well, yeah, well, part of the business. If you're a punter and you got an hour in the red room. You're thinking, great, beautiful. You walk into this room and there was all these glamorous girls smoking. I don't know what they were smoking. I was smoking something. Beautiful. And they would just they do things to you that I don't even think were legal. But he was smart, this bloke, because that's what he was doing. He would stop a punter's momentum by giving him an hour in the red room. And yeah. this is all interesting because it goes to how those guys, as you've come to realise, as you got older and wiser, they were working out how to manipulate race results, not just in Melbourne or Victoria, but anywhere they could. And yep. did they buy and sell information with other race fixers? No, absolutely. Of course they were. I mean, it's, we're talking about the 80s, you know what I mean? So it's not like that now, but in the 80s, um, there was a lot of drug money uh, floating around. There was cash everywhere in the 80s. Yeah, and these blokes, if they can manipulate a result, they would. But looking at it then, I didn't see with the same eyes that I see now. Now I look back and I know all it was was a money laundering uh, thing. Yeah. Taking their dirty money. Yeah. So I, was, I used to panic if I gave them five winners and three got beat and two one, I'd start, oh, my God, you know. But didn't care. As long as you give them a couple of winners, because they took 100 grand of dirty money and they got 70,000 clean, they're still in front. Yeah. Because it's dirty money. That's right. And all it was was a money laundering operation. But back then, I didn't see it because I was only a kid. And look, you love winning. You were a, you were a competitive animal. You were <laughs> yeah. uh, you were a, an athlete. Yep. And you wanted to win, yeah. so it wasn't show off in front of the Sheilas. Show yeah. off. So you weren't big on pulling things up. No. But of course, if you were on something that you thought didn't have a genuine winning chance, would you you know make the pace for something else? Yeah, that was yeah. Backed, I or would. what? And Can you explain this, that this, on? So yeah, I was riding this horse. It was a front runner, and uh, we'd tip horse ridden by a good mate of mine that was going to win. And my job was to go out and make the pace. So I thought, oh, beautiful, I'll go out and make the pace. Something took me on. In fact, a jockey took me on around the riverside. And we not only took the lead, we really led. So it was beautiful. But turning for heart. My name is Manny Karoudis, and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. 
The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts. Um, uh, my thing was still going all right in front and I looked around behind me and then I seen the horse that they'd backed was five lengths behind me struggling. And I thought, oh, God, what's going to happen here? So I went down and he, he stepped the second last and jumped the perfect. I, I was thinking to myself, I hope the Christ this thing makes a mistake at the last. It didn't. It stepped that too. So I had two choices. It was either jump off the side and get 20 years, because Layla would have given me 20 years. Um, Layla being the chief steward of the oh, day. Yeah, he was, he was hard man, he was. And yeah, so it was either that or go and win the race and then hopefully they could understand. So anyway, after I won the race, I went and spoke to... Did you come in smiling or looking a bit Well, brave? I had mixed emotions. I mean, I'd won a race, probably my biggest winner at that stage front of 100,000 people plus all the TV audience, but I weren't supposed to. It's weird, you know what I mean? Um, so it was mixed emotions, you know, a bit like Joe Ryan going off a cliff in my new Maserati sort of thing. I see. Um, so, yeah, so I was, <laughs> I, I didn't know whether to smile or cry. Anyway, I got back to the jockey's room and I said to the leading rider that was also knew what was going on, I said, what do I do? He said, I don't know what you're doing. I'm going back to New Zealand. I said, well, do I go front of me? Goes you better. I said, you're going to come with me? He goes, absolutely not. He said, I'm, I'm gone. So I had to so go up there in front of him. And talk to Jimmy the Triad. And, and, and the uh, Rough Diamond. The Rough Diamond. Yeah. And as far as you knew, it was these Melbourne punters. Yep. But. But I, w- I was soon to learn that they were sort of working for another very high profile race fixer from Sydney. And that would be uh, uh, George Friedman. Oh, absolutely. And um, I went and met, met all them, and I had no idea who they were. They looked like old trainers, you know what I mean? Down here in Melbourne? No, no, no. No, no, I, sorry. I, once that horse won it. Won, what did they say? Well, I went up there, and you, you you wouldn't believe this. I went up to them, and they're all sitting around the table, and the looks on their faces, because they don't know nothing about racing. All they know is I've told them this is win, and I've got up and beat them. So they've, I've double-crossed. Yeah. They're probably 40. They have this bloke walking in, coming to me. It's his kid, isn't he? And um, I went up to him and explained, now, Jimmy Detroit wasn't too bad, but the rough diamond weren't very happy at all. Right. He looked like he could take me out and slit me throat. But I explained to him what happened. I didn't buy it. They had a hundred grand of their own money, um, but more money had come down from Sydney to back this horse. Anyway, I had rode a horse for a trainer the week before and over 10 furlongs at Caulfield, and he didn't stay. He ran fourth, and um, he was a pretty good horse horse. And he was running this day, and I said, look, look, look listen, on, in the f- third or fourth race, this is horse, it's a certainty. It's about 15 to 1, too. And I had no idea. Simon never said anything to me. I just said that just to sort of, you know, hopefully um, calm him down a little bit. And they go, are you sure? I said, I'm telling you, it'll win. Thinking, F- I hope this thing wins. And anyway, it won, and they backed it and got their money back. So, yeah, what what... Looked like a really bad situation was sort of not really forgiven, but it was um, yeah dampened down a bit. And that was all very well. Now explain to the to the listeners who may not recall that there were sometimes jumps races in Sydney. In the late eighties, we got like one or two races just for a novelty thing. Yeah, a lot of them were going to Sydney as sort of the last race of the year. So I go up to Sydney, and anyway, I get told before I went up there that this bloke wanted to see me, the boss. Whereabouts? Uh, where, where oh, well, we were staying at the Parramatta Park Royal, yeah. and I was told to go to a place called the Star Bar or the Star Hotel in Potts Point. Potts Point. Well, I don't know. No, no, I don't know Sydney. Well, Potts Point, that's King's Cross. Yeah. 
Is that right? It is. So anyway, I got in a taxi and went to this joint, met a bloke at the door. He took me into this place. Anyway, went into his room and met this bloke in a suit. What did he look like? Grey-headed bloke in a suit. You know, Suntan. smoking. Yeah, I, yeah, he looked. He looked great. He did, and um, until he opened his mouth, and um, and then what happened? Oh, what, he, what, what did he say? He, he give it to me. He said, "You fucking owe us. You cost us a fortune. If you don't do what you're told this time, you won't be going home." And he sort of, he was like a father sort of thing. He sort of give it to me, and for your own good, you need to know you're a great writer, but you've got to know that if you say you're going to do something, you know what I mean? So he, he thought like my old man giving it to me. <laughs> Who else was in the room? Um, <laughs> there was a bloke um, standing adjacent to him. Um, he, he was sitting down, and um, yeah, it was, it was the cop, the corrupt cop, with his name, Rogerson. And I didn't know, because I didn't know any of them back then. You know, it was George Freeman and, and Rogerson, and I think even a couple of the other blokes were there, McPherson and all that, um, and a couple of knuckleheads, you know what I mean? I mean, these blokes were dressed in suits. you got to understand it was November, so it was pretty warm. Yeah. So they were well-dressed, nice, but when he opened his mouth, he just give it to me. He weren't going to hear anything that I had to say. He said, I don't want to hear any of your f***ing excuses. And he told me quite in short terms that... You know, I owed him. I cost him a fortune. What am I going to do to, to you know, pay it back to him? Right. So, yeah. And what was the deal? What did he propose? He, he just said to me, he said, you fucking do what you're told this time or you're not, you won't be going home. And then I um, was told that um, all I had to do was, well, oh, that's right. I had to harass the favourite. And mine was a front runner anyways. But I was pretty concerned about what they said. But what happened was we went to the races and the day of the race – who was the steward? Um, what's his name? Um, yeah, Shrek. Shrek. Was, he had us all in the room. The sheriff. He knew something was up, Shrek, because he said, if you blokes let this thing roll along in front, I'll be on ears, right? So what happened was- Your thing. My thing, yeah. Was, mine was a mad front runner. So anyway, mine half missed the start. They all kicked up, went straight. So I got crowded going to the first, and mine took off a long way away, landed on top. I, I fell off, uh, got kicked in the leg, in the, in the balls, in the head. And um, I didn't jump off it, right? It, it actually lost me, and no one would have stayed on it. I got, I got a corked thigh, and I thought I broke my leg. And basically checked myself out of at a hospital. And, no, you, and you were taken to hospital? Ta- yeah, I was taken to hospital by ambulance and all that. And um, checked myself out and got in the first plane and come home. That got the result that the bad guys wanted. Yeah, because they backed something from New Zealand. The money was on the yep, New Zealand yep, thing? Yep, the money was on you, New Zealand. You're taking the hospital away from, hospital away from the stewards? Away from the stewards. And the stewards would have been interested in your fall? Well, actually, I got on a plane and just went home. Did you think they might be interested in Absolutely. I didn't even go back and check out the hotel. I just got on a plane and went home. And got back safely to Melbourne? Yeah. And did you hear any more about it? Heard nothing. So that was a narrow escape from... Another one. Another one. And I made up my mind right there and then that from now on, I was never, ever, ever going to back something else in a race that I'm riding in because I'm too competitive. Do you know what I mean? I... I can't pull the horses up. I just want to win all the time. So that never never happened again. And when I used to uh, tip horses to blokes, because they say tipping's illegal, but everyone doesn't. I mean, and jockeys are renowned for being the worst judges in the world. So people don't listen to jockeys anyway. So I used to say to people that was backing my horses, just back whatever I'm riding. Just back whatever I'm riding. Because my strike rate was 30% at one stage. Yeah. So I just back whatever I'm riding. I don't care if it's 20 to 1, 100 to 1, odds on, just back it. So that's what we've done. There was actually one time like later on in the 90s when I was flying that I said the horse just could not win. And because everything I rode was favourite, even if it didn't deserve to be favourite. 
and there was a horse, Maori legend from New Zealand, that came over with a huge rap. This horse is supposed to be a world beater. Anyway, I was riding it in the race, and it was favourite, because I'd scored it a week before at Flemington, and all the press were there. And the horse went terrible, but I said to all the blokes that went, it was fly, flying, it can't get beat, because I don't know. So they all wrote a big story on it, how it scored great. It started odds on favourite, and I said to a mate of mine, a couple of blokes, they were ex-book makers that ran betting exchanges that this will not win, and that was the only time I got money out of lane one. But, I mean, I tried to win, it still ran third, so betting against my judgement, which a lot of jockeys do do and get themselves in trouble. They do. They do, yeah. Get. To live your boyhood dream of riding in the UK against the best in the world? When I seen the Grand National when I was a nine-year-old, and I wrote this down, I've got it at home, because I, I keep diaries and journals. I've done it all my life. And um, I had three things I wanted to do when in England. I wanted to ride for a, a good trainer, Martin Pipe, check. I wanted to ride in the Grand National, tick. I wanted to win the Gold Cup and win the Champion Hurdle. Now, I didn't win the Gold Cup, I won the Coral Cup. I didn't win the champion hurdle. I won two Welsh champion hurdles. So if someone says laws of attraction don't exist, you're wrong. I mean, I've just proven it. So you go there and you ride for a major trainer. Now, how did he come to offer you the job? Well, Martin Pipe, I contacted his trainer and I wrote to him every week for a year. A very good trainer. The leading trainer, like a legendary trainer. In the end, he rang me up and said, listen, if you want to come, come, but stop sending me letters, you know? (laughs) And when I got there, he said, I could have had any jockey I want in the world. I get Japanese jockeys. Everyone tries to contact me. But you, you would not give up. You just kept sending this stuff. And I was laughing, saying, this bloke, he's still sending this stuff. So that's how come you got your go. And um, from there, I went on and done all the things I wanted to do. So it was good. And you went well? I went great. I mean, I had the third best strike rate of any jockey ever. I had over, well over 100 rides in, in England, won t- uh, three big races, rode in the Grand National, so yeah, everything was great. Just for the racing fans out there, oh. as a point of comparison, in the present day in Victoria, we have a very good Irish jockey called John Allen, yep. who's a good flat rider, who, yeah. who's also a good jumps rider. Yeah, he rides good. And when a relative of mine asked him why he didn't stay in Ireland or the UK and ride, yeah. he said, look, the fact is over there, I'm about number 40. Yeah. But here, you know, it's it's a bit easier for me. Yep. Is that true, do you think? Well, yeah, but I mean, I was told, and when I went to go to England, everyone's saying, are you crazy? You've just come back from the 91 injury that nearly killed you. You've been champion jockey the last few years. Why would you want to stop all that and go to England where, here, you're a big fish in a small pond. Over there, you're going to be a minnow in an ocean. I said, that's all I wanted to do. Since I was a kid, is go there. So I'm going there and nothing will get in me way. And so, Jock... Those are the highs of your career, but there's also been some big lows yeah, and some other colourful characters, and we might talk about them next week. Thanks for listening. Please comment or rate it on whatever platform you're using. And if you haven't done it already, please subscribe. Hello, I'm John Ralph. I'm Glenn McFarlane. We'll take you behind the scenes with some of the biggest names in the game to find out how they found out their time was up and who pulled the trigger. Welcome to Sacked, a podcast that explores what really happens after the axe falls on an AFL coach. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for every episode on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother... 
It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth and I thought he was dead. Another one had been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime.